You're now listening to a podcast of Revolution Church, located at 1702 6th Street in Portsmouth, Ohio. Revolution meets on Sunday evenings at 6 p.m. For more information, visit www.revolutionchurchohio.com or check out our Facebook page. Gospel of Mark, chapter 1, verses 21 through 28, where we're going to be this evening. I've got my preaching rag ready because it's hot in here. We are not Pentecostals, but it may make me look like one before we're done. Um, so yeah, we're continuing our study of the Gospel of Mark, and this week we come to the account of Jesus teaching in a synagogue, showing his authority, and casting a demon out of a man who was there with them. One word comes to mind whenever we read this passage, and that's authority. Authority. Authority is one of the only words and ideas that offend people in our culture anymore. It's one of the few ideas that actually offends people is authority. You can get away with all kinds of beliefs and words and phrases, but when it comes to the idea of authority, most people in our culture cringe. If you've not had your head in the sand uh, these past couple of weeks, then you know that there's been a lot of talk about abortion and about Alabama passing laws that ban abortion. Um, Just a real quick aside, praise God for that, and we should be praying that God would give us righteous rulers who would do this across the nation, Uh, but that's another sermon for a a different time on the evils of abortion. Uh, But since that law has passed in Alabama, you can see on social media, the news, television, all kinds of platforms, you can see one big idea being repeated, and it's this, you've heard this, nobody can tell a woman what to do with her body. Right, which is a horrible, illogical, godless argument because we're not concerned with what the woman does with her body. We're concerned with what she does with the body within her body. Um, but that, again, that's another thing for another time. But what that argument comes down to is people thinking this thought. Nobody can tell anybody what to do. That's what that comes down to in a nutshell. No one can tell me what to do. No one can tell anyone what to do. That's a dominant thought for a lot of people, that nobody has a right to tell someone else what to do or what to believe. And this is because many people in our culture don't believe that there is an objective standard of truth and an objective standard of morality that we must submit to. Most people, or at least some people, and the number is growing, think that people ought to be free to do whatever they want and answer to nobody, whether it be man or God. You should be able to do whatever you want and answer to no one. But for Christians, this is a huge problem. This is a huge problem because we know that there is a true and abiding, supreme standard of truth and morality, namely God. And he's revealed himself to us and his infallible standard in his word and in his word alone. And God's authority extends to everyone and extends to everything, regardless of what they think. All people answer in the end to God. He is the supreme authority over all, whether or not they accept it. In the words of Vodi Bakum, God ain't running for God. He is God, and all will recognize this. And God has fully and finally revealed himself in his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, in whom, Paul says, all the fullness of God dwells bodily. He is God in the flesh. Jesus Christ is the supreme authority. 
we know that people are not free to rebel against him with impunity. And in fact, one day all human beings will stand before him in the judgment. And all who are found outside of Christ, not trusting in him alone, apart from any merit on their own. All those who are not found trusting in Christ alone for their salvation and submitting to him as Lord will perish under the wrath of the Lamb. All that is to say, Jesus Christ has full authority. And that's the big idea of the sermon this evening. If you're a note taker, write that down. Jesus is the one with all authority. That's where we're going. And we're going to see that in how he asserts his authority and the way that he teaches like no one else ever had or no one else ever could or would again. And then back up his authority to teach with a display of power and casting a demon out from a demon-possessed man. The Holy Spirit inspired Mark to record this event for us so that we could see the supremacy and authority of the Lord Jesus. So with that said, let's go ahead and read our passage. Gospel of Mark, chapter 1, verses 21 through 28. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he, Jesus, entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching. For he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him, And crying out with a loud voice came out of him. And they were all amazed. So that they questioned among themselves saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. This is God's word. Let's pray. Our great God and Father, we ask that you would make us teachable this evening. Please open our hearts and minds so that we can receive your word in all faith and believing your word that we would then cherish it, love it, and submit to it. By your Holy Spirit, please show us the great supremacy and authority of our Lord Jesus Christ so that we might see him and love him for who he is and worship him properly. Please work righteousness in us as you sanctify us by your word. God, please add your blessing to the word preached this evening. We ask for this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Right, so we're just going to do what we always do, right? We're just going to walk through this passage verse by verse. So starting with verse 21. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching. So on a Sabbath day, right under the Old Covenant, the Sabbath day was Saturday. Uh, Jesus, after he calls his first four disciples, as we saw last week, he goes into a town called Capernaum. Capernaum is a town uh, near the northwestern part of the Sea of Galilee. It's probably where the four disciples lived. Uh, But they go into a synagogue on the Jewish Sabbath there in Capernaum. Now a synagogue, if you don't know, is a place of worship for Jews. And we want to be clear, The synagogue is not the temple, right? There are no sacrifices going on in synagogues. There's no priesthood in the synagogues. Uh, The synagogue was a lot like our churches. 
Right? It was a place where Jewish people would meet on their Sabbath day and hear the Old Testament read and taught. They would pray, they would sing psalms, and they would be taught the Old Testament scriptures. Um, now, something that's interesting is that there was no pastor right, or pastor figure of a synagogue. What they had was known as the ruler of the synagogue. And that man was basically the person who took care of the scrolls uh, that would be contained in the synagogue and organized things that would take place there. Uh, in that building. But since there was no pastor figure in the synagogue, you would have different people teach at different times, right? If there was a rabbi who happened to be traveling through and be in that area, you might have him teach. Or maybe if there was a priest that was in your area that week, you would have the priest teach. Uh, or an educated layperson, right? A, a layperson who could read the scriptures could get up and teach. Uh, but often you had scribes who would teach. And scribes were some of the most well-educated people of the day. They were, they were very highly regarded by the Jews as masters of the scriptures and masters of the traditions of the elders, which are these extra-biblical, outside-of-the-Bible traditions that the Jewish, Jewish people and their leaders kind of just made up. Uh, but they're masters in the traditions of the elders. Uh, but since Jesus was a rabbi, I said all that to say this, since he was a rabbi who was in Capernaum at the time, they gladly would have allowed him to teach. So this is how Jesus comes to teach at this synagogue in Capernaum. And what he would have done, tell me if this sounds familiar, is he would have taken a scripture reading and then expounded on it and explained it to the people. <laughs> it's like what we do. It's funny, church worship and synagogue worship wouldn't have been super far off with the exception of the sacraments. Uh, but again, just like preachers and pastors do, it's what Jesus would have done. So Mark tells us that Jesus is teaching in the synagogue. But what's interesting, you'll notice, Mark's not concerned with telling us what Jesus taught that day. He doesn't tell us what Jesus taught. He's not concerned with us knowing the content of what was taught that day. Mark wants us to focus on how Jesus taught. Verse 22 says, And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority, and not as the scribes. Mark says that Jesus taught them as one who had authority. But what, what does that mean? Well, again, he compares it. It's not like the teachings of the scribes. So what you should know is that how, how did Jewish scribes teach then? Because Jesus taught the opposite, apparently. Whenever Jewish scribes would teach, they would have lengthy discourses on the law. Right? But they were dry teachers. Right? Dry. There was no life in their preaching. Basically, what they would do is they could put a group of believers together. Uh, they could put them to sleep, right? Because they constantly were going on and on about even the slightest and smallest nuances of the application of the law according to the traditions of the elders. Right? Again, no life in their teaching. And they'd spend the majority of the time not dealing with the scriptures, but rather quoting famous rabbis. And quoting the opinions of all these other teachers, right? You'd hear, well, Rabbi Gamaliel said this, or Rabbi Hillel says this, or yet another rabbi says this, and this guy has this opinion, and so on. They would go and go, and they would quote from all kinds of sources that they deemed authoritative, and again, give the opinions of all kinds of teachers. Basically, the scribes, what they did is they would root their authority in teaching by saying, so-and-so says this. And that's my authority. Rabbi so-and-so says this, and that's why you should believe what I'm saying. Again, there's no life in this kind of teaching. There's no zeal. 
It was just lecturing people on law and what they could and could not do and constantly appealing to the traditions of their elders as their source of authority. There was no sense of urgency from these scribes. There was no heart application, no passion, just cold opinions of rabbis and the traditions of their elders repeated over and over again. But this is not how Jesus taught. This is not how the Lord Jesus taught. He taught from the word of God. And when Jesus taught, he taught as no one ever had or no one ever would again. He was the perfect preacher. You can read his discourses in the Gospels and see that he was a teacher who was full of passion, full of truth. He believed what he was preaching. Right? Obviously, he's God. Of course he believes what he's preaching. Right? But he, he was full of application to the hearts of his hearers. If you read the Sermon on the Mount, you're pierced to the core with Jesus challenging you. Right? He was anything but cold. He preached from a heart that loves God and desires his Father to be glorified. He spoke with a sense of urgency, knowing, as he says many times, the kingdom of God is at hand. He was a teacher who was full of metaphors and illustrations. Again, the greatest preacher to ever walk the earth. His teaching was full of life and zeal and compassion and love, and it was practical, and it was fresh. And when I say fresh, I mean it was old truth, but put in such a way that it felt new. But the most jaw-dropping thing, the most stunning thing about Jesus' teaching was how he quoted nobody. The only thing Jesus quoted was the scriptures. Or he would quote a Pharisee in order to absolutely put the smack down on one of their points. Yeah, that was a wrestling reference. That was kind of, shouldn't have happened just now. Whatever. <laughs> he quoted nothing but the scriptures. You won't find a discourse of Jesus, no teaching from him, where he is grounding his authority or why he should be believed in what any human teacher had said. You won't find it. He teaches as one with authority, is what Mark says. He doesn't derive any authority because this rabbi or that rabbi or that counselor or whatever said something. Jesus doesn't quote other rabbis and teachers. He doesn't appeal to anything but the scriptures. When he taught, he didn't weigh out the opinions of anyone. He wasn't concerned with the traditions of the elders. He wasn't concerned with whether or not rabbis agreed with him in his teachings. What Jesus would do, and this is unique to Jesus and how he could teach, is he would just declare what is true and tell people that they were morally obligated to heed his words and repent and believe his message or perish. When he taught, he taught as one with authority. Not, one, not as one who had to appeal to others for a sense of authority. And again, no one had ever taught like this before. Verse 22 says they were astonished. They were absolutely stunned. This would have been shocking to witness. Someone going completely outside of the norm and teaching as if he had authority. And that's exactly what Jesus was declaring in how he th and how he taught. He was implying something about himself in his teaching style. And this is what he was implying. He is the authority. He's saying, I am the authority. He didn't quote from any other sources because he didn't need to. He has all authority in himself. He's the Son of God. He's God in the flesh, God incarnate, the Messiah of God that God had appointed to come to save his people. 
If you read in Deuteronomy 18, you'll see that Jesus is the great prophet that Moses had promised to the people of Israel. He doesn't need to appeal to any other source because he is the end-all, be-all source of authority. Let me illustrate this for you real quick. I helped to manage my mom's convenience store in Minford, right? Buy stuff from us. It's called Mule Town. We need your money. Um, right? But I've been in there since I was a baby. So I, I know a little bit how to run a business, right? Not a lot, but I know a little bit. Now, question. Would it make sense for Bill Gates, one of the most successful businessmen in the history of the world, to quote me, to quote me, and say, well, since David Dowdy said this, I think this would be a good business decision. That is bananas. <laughs> right? That's bonkers to think about. Bill Gates doesn't need my opinion on business. Right? I don't know anything about business compared to this guy. He's a mogul. He's a much higher authority than, than I am when it comes to businesses and how to run one well. But that pales in comparison to the authority that Christ has to teach. It would make more sense for Bill Gates to quote me in a business meeting than for our Lord Jesus to quote even the most educated teacher of Scripture. Jesus has no equal in his authority to teach. No equal whatsoever. There's nobody in the same ballpark as him. There's nobody even playing the same game whenever it comes to Jesus' authority. He is completely unique and unparalleled in authority. And why is that? Because the Lord Jesus' authority to teach is tied to his person, to just to who he is, right? Just who he is is the basis for him to never quote a single source. Like Paul says in Romans 11, who has given counsel to the Lord? Who would ever teach God? Who would God ever have to say, yes, I have consensus with the following human beings that I created, therefore you should listen to me. It's nonsense. He is inherently authoritative in every regard. Just consider how Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount. You have heard it said, the traditions of the elders, but I say, but I say. His authority is infinitely higher than anyone else's. And again, the way he taught is essentially a claim from him to that authority, that supreme authority. When Jesus opened his mouth, God was speaking. Which tells us something, again, to paraphrase John Calvin, every time that we open the Bible, it should be as if God is speaking to us. That's the kind of reverence that we should attend the word of God. But he taught with the sovereign authority of God Almighty. His teaching, his word permits no debate. His word permits no theoretical reflection. His teaching confronts people with the absolute claim of God over his creation. When Jesus teaches, remember this when you see Christ, whenever you read anything in the scriptures, because it is all the word of Christ, according to the Apostle Paul. When you read the word of God or when you see Christ teach in the scriptures, he's not asking for people's opinions. He's not weighing what he thinks against what other people think. He is declaring what is true. And that everyone is obligated to submit in faith and obedience to whatever he says. Pay attention to how Jesus speaks. He speaks like a prophet. Because, again, he is our great prophet. He's our prophet, priest, and king. He's our great prophet. More than that, he's God, but a prophet for certain. 
when you read Jesus' words, they have the sound of, thus saith the Lord, except it's worded, I say to you. The way he taught, again, a claim to his divinity. No one else would have a legitimate right to teach this way. Could you imagine if I came to you and said, I know you've heard this, but I'm telling you just in myself, what right would I have to approach any of you that way? None. Only God has a legitimate claim to teach this way. Again, he never said in my educated scholarly opinion, no, he says this is how it is, period. Repent. Believe in me. Believe me. Believe everything that I tell you. And he has authority not just to give his opinion, but to constrain men to believe him and obey. To constrain their conscience that they would submit. And again, he's authorized to do this in his own divine nature. He's intrinsically authorized to do this because he's God, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity. And he's authorized to do this in his human nature. I don't know if you've ever considered this. Christ is authorized to teach this way in his human nature as the one who has been sent by God and anointed with the Holy Spirit at his baptism to preach the gospel and do the works of God as the Messiah. So that is to say, Jesus Christ in every regard his divine nature, and his human nature even, has full authority to teach this way. He has all authority, and we are obligated to it. So again, if I've not made it clear, he taught as one with authority, because the authority rests in and of himself. But, so no one could ever say that Jesus' teaching authority was just a bare claim with no ground God in his providence, orchestrated an event so we could see with abundant clarity just what kind of power Jesus has. Jesus is about to perform an exorcism. He's about to do a miracle, a show of power to prove his authority. Verse 23, and immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. So in this synagogue, maybe even as Jesus was preaching, perhaps, maybe this demon had the gall to interrupt our Lord As he's preaching, a demon-possessed man is there with them in the synagogue. And a quick aside on this, um, just to make sure we're all on the same page here or you know where we're at as a church. Uh, This is an actual demon, right? Liberal theologians love to say that this, this stuff's not real, right? We just want to be clear on this. This is a real demon. This isn't figurative language. Uh, This isn't some kind of a mental disorder in this person. This isn't an error in the scriptures. Demons are real. Right? Demons are, the scriptures tell us, they're fallen angels that rebelled against God with Satan and were cast out of heaven. I think you can read that in Revelation 12. The Bible tells us God has also already pronounced judgment on these rebellious angels, and their eternal destiny is the lake of fire. The apostle Jude tells us that some are already bound in chains in the pit, and others are allowed but by God to roam the earth and at God's permission, tempt and even harm human beings. We see clearly in the New Testament record, demons, demons can possess people. But you should know this, Christians. Demons cannot possess believers. Why is that? Because we have the Holy Spirit dwelling in us. And as we're going to see in Mark chapter 3, Jesus says, you can't go into a strong man's house and do anything to him unless you first tie up the strong man. 
and the Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity. He is God, and no demon can kick the Holy Spirit of God out of a believer to then take up residence in that believer. God is infinitely more powerful than a demon. So again, Christians cannot be possessed. But that being said, demons are incredibly powerful, but we should be clear. They are not omnipotent. They're also not all-knowing, though they may feign that kind of an ability. They're not all anything. They're not all powerful. They're not all knowing. They're not all present, right? They're finite created beings, right? To quote Martin Luther, the devil is God's devil. He keeps him on a leash, right? They're finite beings. They're spirit beings at the same time, though. They're unseen to our naked eye. But nevertheless, their power and influence can be seen in the world. One last thing you're a fool. You're a fool if you don't take seriously the reality of demonic influence in the world. You're a fool. Paul tells us that the pagans don't worship false gods, they worship demons. Keep that in mind. Scripture talks about these things. But yes, I just want to be clear. As crazy as it might sound to the world out there, we come and humble ourselves before the Word of God and we see that this is a real deal fallen angel, agent of Satan, demon. But there's a demon-possessed man in the synagogue. Back to the text. And the demon in the man has taken control of the man's body to the point where he can speak through the man. Right? Just like Satan possessed a serpent and then spoke through the serpent back in Genesis in the Garden of Eden. And our text tells us, And he cried out, verse 24, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. This demon is panicked. Panicked. He cries out, and the idea is a cry of terror, a cry of fear. And he asks Jesus, what do you have to do with us, right? What do you have to do with us? And notice that us. This demon is most likely speaking on behalf of demons in general. right? What do you have to do with us? What do you have to do with, the, with, with satanic forces? What do you have to do with this bunch of demons that roam the earth. But this phrase, you should know this, it's a defiant question. What do you have to do with us? Is, is a phrase. And it's a, it's a phrase used in the Old Testament that basically means you have no right to be here. Go away. Right? So shockingly enough, this demon is attempting to cast out Jesus from the synagogue. <laughs> you have no right to be here. Go away, Jesus. And just a quick note, the arrogance of the unconverted and ungodly is astounding. Whether it be human being or fallen angel, the arrogance of the wicked is absolutely astounding. That any creature would dare try and command God is blasphemy and the height of pride the height of arrogance, and yet what does every single human being in their rebellion against God do? Defies his authority, says, I will not submit. I will do what I want. The height of arrogance in the unbeliever and the unconverted person is astounding, very much like this demon says, get away from me, Jesus, as if he can tell the almighty son of God what to do. But the demon then asks, have you come to destroy us? This demon knows who Jesus is. 
This demon knows who Jesus is and that Jesus has the power, ability, and authority to destroy anything and anyone if he so desires. Again, I want to stress to you, this demon is terrified. He's afraid. And it should really make us look at Jesus in a different light. Just real, real quick. It should make us look at our Lord Jesus with awe that a demon who would petrify one of us is terrified when he speaks to Christ. That should lead your heart to worship whenever you consider the power of the Lord Jesus, that demons quake when they think of him. But there's something for us to see in, the, in, in this demon asking the question, have you come to destroy us? Well, what's implied here? Only God can destroy a demon. Only God can destroy a demon. Who else can do anything to a spiritual being except one who has authority over the spiritual realm? Only God would have the authority and power to destroy a demon. So again, there's a tacit implication of the deity of Christ here. And then finally, the demon speaks the true identity of Jesus. I know who you are. You're the Holy One of God. And this is a reference to the divine sonship of Christ. We see elsewhere in the Gospels that when Jesus confronts a demon, this is really interesting, when Jesus confronts a demon and there's an exchange of words, the demons often name Jesus as the Son of God, the Son of the Most High God, or the Holy One of God. So it's really ironic that in the synagogue on that day, it's a demon who first declares the true identity of Jesus. It's really ironic. People all throughout the ministry of Christ are going to be asking the question, who is this man? Who is this guy? But it's the demons who always get the right answer. It's strange. It's ironic. The demons know who he is. They know his great power. They know his great authority. And that's why they fear him. As James tells us in the book of James, chapter 2.19, they tremble when they consider God. Right, so this demon knows that Jesus is God come in the flesh. This demon knows that Jesus' coming means the coming of the kingdom of God and the end of their rule over sinners. They know that Christ has come to set sinners free from the tyranny of Satan. They know that Christ has come to as he says in Mark 3, bind the strong man and plunder his goods, plunder his house. What does that mean? He's come to bind the devil and save sinners. The demons know that they stand face to face with the Son of God, the one with supreme authority over both the temporal realm and the spiritual realm, and they're terrified. And now we come to Jesus' response to this demon, and it's a great show of power and authority Verses 25 and 26. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. Be, this is kind of funny. Be silent and come out of him. That is not nice language in the original. That's not nice. Our Lord basically looked this demon in the face and said, Shut up and get out. Again, we kind of don't think of Jesus as ever having this kind of an attitude, but he absolutely does. It was righteous anger. The Lord Jesus refused to listen to another second of this demon's arrogance 
or his pleading or even declaring truths about Jesus. Jesus wanted the demon gone. So Jesus just commanded it to shut up and leave the possessed man. And what happens? The demon never speaks another word, does he, in this passage? He says nothing else. He, he shouts, but there's not another word uttered. And he leaves the man. Yeah, he convulses the man for a moment or two, but it leaves. The demon leaves and it never speaks again. And this is absolutely amazing. And again, we're, we're just familiar with texts like these, so it doesn't shock us. Jesus spoke a few words and the demon was gone. At the command of Christ, he left. This is the kind of authority that Jesus has. And this is completely unique. And when I say this is unique, what I mean is we have ancient records of Jewish exorcisms. Right? And these Jewish exorcisms would be elaborate rituals that had incantations and chanting and calling upon the names of teachers and different things like that. But Jesus didn't do anything like that, did he? Nothing. He had no method for his exorcism. Right? I think of the movie The Exorcist. I need a young priest and an old priest. There was nothing like that. Right? There was no chanting. There was no dramatic motions, no acting. He uses no kind of incantation. He doesn't call upon the name of any holy man. He doesn't even call upon the name of God in this exorcism, does he? Jesus told the demon what to do, and it obeyed him. And notice this. The demon obeyed Jesus against its own will. You want to talk about sovereign authority? It went out from the man after convulsing him and screaming. It did not want to go, but it did not have a choice. The demon had to obey Christ because Christ had authority over it. This shows us that Jesus is the supreme power and authority over all. Question. What kind of power and authority would you have to have to command a demon with a word? Divine authority. Divine power. This exorcism is one of many proofs that we're going to see that indeed Jesus is the Messiah, that he is the Son of God, that the kingdom of God has come, and that all people everywhere must listen to him. They must submit to what he teaches. They must believe in him. They must trust in him and they must follow him. Or perish. The king has come. Verse 27. And they were all amazed so that they questioned among themselves, what is this? What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. Verse 27 tells us they were amazed. Every single one of them were stunned. And that word amazed, again, this made me chuckle. It means struck, like to like strike someone in the face. Like that's how stunned that they were over what they just saw. They had never heard teaching like Jesus. They had never seen anyone with power to command even demons. They've never encountered someone with this kind of power and authority. And that's because there is no one like him. There is son because he has no equal. There's no one like Christ. He's not just an ordinary man. Contrary, contrary to what all of these liberal theologians might tell you, he was not just a good teacher. He was not just here to tell you seven steps to living a better life. 
He wasn't here to do anything like that. Don't get me wrong. Rather, I should say, that was part of what he taught. But he's so much more than that. How he taught, how he acted, the things he did does not permit you to look at him and say, he is one opinion among many. He is the authority. He is the Son of God. He's the God-man. The the people there were stunned because they didn't realize it, though they should have, but they had just been in the presence of the sovereign God Almighty veiled in human flesh. So that's all well and good. We've done 35 minutes of an exposition on this passage. What does this have to do with you? First thing, this passage reminds us of who's in charge. I'm beating that drum till it breaks right now if you can't notice. This passage reminds us of who is in charge. His name is the Lord Jesus Christ. Hear me out. I know we have visitors here. I don't know whether or not you're a Christian, but it doesn't matter. Whether or not you're a Christian, Jesus is the supreme authority. If he, has a pow- if he has this kind of power over the spiritual realm and over demons, and you're not nearly as powerful as a demon, oh man, then what does that mean for you? What right do you have to contradict him ever? What right do you have to disbelieve a single word that he says? What right do you have to not submit to him? You have no right. You have no right. Every knee will bow before Christ someday and acknowledge him as sovereign Lord and ruler of the universe and king of the kingdom of God, whether done willingly as one of his people or unwillingly like this demon in our narrative. It will happen. We must submit to him. He is God. Enough of this wussed out Jesus that we hear about so often out of so many modern evangelical pulpits. That is not the Christ of Scripture. He doesn't need you. He's not yearning. He's not heartbroken over you. He is the king, and his word is not to be questioned. You are to submit to him or perish. His commands are to be obeyed. His doctrine is to be believed, and his person is to be trusted in with all we have for our salvation. So unbelievers, submit to him. Repent of your sins and your rebellion against him and his ways and come to him in faith alone, believing that he is God, that you are under his authority. Believe that Jesus Christ is Lord and be saved. And believer, continue to submit to him. When you find yourself wanting to rebel against his commandments, I want you to remember this passage and remember who you are in light of who he is. No matter what the command, we have no right to contradict the king of the world. Let this passage be a strong reminder to anyone who would dare contradict our Lord. He is in charge. This is his world. We are his creations. He is Lord. Second, not only do we see the Lord Jesus' sovereign authority in this text. That's not the only thing for us to see here. We see his compassion in this text. I know that I've just shown you a great big Jesus that's not to be trifled with, and that's on purpose. Because whenever then you see the compassion of such a sovereign Lord, it blows your mind and leads you to worship, doesn't it? 
we see a big part of Jesus' mission in his casting the demon out of this man. Christ didn't come to only give a show of power and make people cower in fear at the thought of him. The Lord Jesus Christ came into this world to free sinners. Maybe you didn't catch it, but when Jesus cast out that demon, he was also setting the possessed man free from the power of the devil. He was setting him free. Jesus Christ was sent by God the Father to deliver people from the tyranny of sin and Satan and overturn Satan's kingdom. And we see a foreshadowing of that in Jesus' freeing this man from the power of a demon. Scripture tells us that the world lies in the power of the evil one, that is the devil. And the Apostle Paul tells us in Ephesians 2 that we were once all following Satan, the prince of the power of the air, living lives full of sin and rebellion against the authority of God, disobeying his law with no care. Scripture says that not only were we dead in our sins and our trespasses following the devil and subject to God's wrath because of our sins, but it says that we were blind in our sin, that Satan had blinded us to the things of God. But what did Jesus do? He took our sins and our rebellion upon himself and paid for them on a cross. Suffering the wrath of Almighty God as a substitute in our place and then rising from the dead on the third day. And he did this so that by faith in him we could be forgiven, we could be made clean, and be brought out of the darkness, out from the power of sin, out from the domain and rule of Satan, and into the kingdom of God. That's what he came to do, is to free people who, lied in the, who, who lay in the grip of the devil. I'm, I'm not saying that every unbeliever is demon-possessed. I'm not saying that. But I am saying this in a very real way. The scriptures teach us that every unbeliever is under the power of Satan. Being led by Satan. A slave to sin and a stranger to the things of God. Every one of them. And you, Christian, used to be one of them. But the good news is that Christ came into the world to bind the devil and set prisoners free from the tyranny of sin and Satan. He came to set sinners free by his death and his resurrection. Christian, you were once under the power of the devil, but you should rejoice because you're free. You're free. Just like Christ cast the demon from the man, the Lord Jesus has made you free. So rejoice in that, Christian. An unbeliever. Christ has made the only way for you to be free. To be set free to know God to live fully as God intended you, to have joy, to experience the grace of forgiveness and restoration with God, to have eternal life, and to have peace with God. Repent of your sins and believe on Christ and be made free. He's done the work on your behalf in his death and resurrection to make you free. Believe on him and receive your freedom from the tyranny of Satan. And we know from the lips of our Lord Jesus, he who the Son sets free is free indeed. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your holy, infallible, and inspired word. In it we see 
who Christ is, that we might worship him rightly for who he is. We see this offer of the gospel made to all of us. We get to see as believers what we rejoice in. We rejoice in the authority of our king, Lord. We rejoice in the freedom that he purchased us by his blood. God, I pray that you would humble our hearts as we remember who Jesus is. That we would daily seek to kill our sin and bow the knee to Christ in our heart. That he would be Lord over all of who we are. That he would be Lord over our job life, our family life, our politics. That he would be Lord over our morality, our entertainment choices, the way we talk. That he would be Lord over all things. God, please subdue us that we might reverence Christ. Lord, if there are unbelievers present with us this evening, I pray that you would run them down and bring them to their knees that they might trust in Christ alone for their salvation. God, please set sinners free that you might be glorified and that Christ might receive the full reward for his suffering. We pray this all in his name and for his sake. Amen.